Well, I have to admit that I'm, I think I'm addicted. <laughs> Tried my best to get away from these minor prophets, but I must just be addicted to them. Because I, what I do is, you know, I'll think about what to preach on on a Wednesday night, ask the Lord to guide me. And I always kind of go back over there and say, oh, you don't wonder who was the next one. And so then I go get it. It's like a web. It's like a spider web. And I start reading and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's just too good to pass up. And tonight, in, in the throes of my addiction, we come to the book of Haggai, or Haggai, however you want to pronounce it. And Haggai is probably, except for maybe Obadiah, is probably the second shortest of the minor prophets. But my goodness, for a short two-chapter prophecy, it is packed with messianic and prophecy and also just, just day-to-day encouragement from his, his ministry. So the name of the, the message is the rubble, the remnant, and the restoration. Because we have moved into the age of minor prophets that deal with the restoration, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. This is at least 70 or so years from the time that the Lord, remember we've seen in these minor prophets, the Lord keeps telling them destruction is coming. If you don't amend your ways... I'm going to chasten you. And the way he was going to chasten them was with another country, another nation, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, it would come and wipe them out. It was like the Lord's paddle, if you will. He paddled them with another nation coming and just completely wiping out Jerusalem. I mean, so the context that you've got to see to understand what's going on is what these guys have come back to and the time that Haggai is prophesying is nothing like the way things used to be. Society and culture and everything as they knew it was gone. The buildings were gone. There's nothing there. There's just Bedouins and there's just shepherds and poor, poorest of the poor people with, with shacks and shanties and you know even tents just living in this area. The poorest of the poor were left there and everything was burnt down. The temple is gone. The city of Jerusalem is wiped out, burnt to the ground. The wall is completely torn down all the way around Jerusalem. I mean, this place is nothing like its former glory. In in the heyday of David and Solomon and even some of the kings like Josiah and Hezekiah and some of the good kings, it's nothing like that. So what they've come into is... A terrible situation where the Lord has just completely wiped clean. It's like he's taken a dirty dish and just cleaned it and wiped it clean and he's going to start over. Now it's interesting that he is starting over with descendants of the very people of Israel that have been in captivity for all of these years. Another thing to keep in mind historically is that these people who went back and did this, they went to great extremes and measures and they left just lavish lifestyle in Babylon. Babylon was the height of existence in those days. From running water to all of the the markets and the beautiful gardens. You know, Babylon, the hanging gardens was one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. And these people left just this luxurious, comfortable lifestyle to go back and do this. And these were not like, okay, well, just, you know, just whoever we can pick to go. No, these were prominent 
people in the society of Babylon who were Israelite descendants that were maintaining their culture and their belief and their worship, and they were burdened to go, you see? So what they return to is just rubble. It's just ash. It's just nothing. And they're, you know, people, you might say most of them are probably sort of like city people. So they're going back to a lifestyle that they've never known because they've been in Babylon uh, for 70 years, you know, however long they've been born in Babylon, you know, after they were taken into captivity. And so they're going back into a very dire and different situation, dangerous situation. Where's their food going to come from? Where is, you know, where is their uh, commerce going to come from? They're, they're building all of that. It's an amazing time. Let's read what Haggai says in chapter 1. He says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, one of those that volunteered and was burdened to go back, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, now listen to what Haggai says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house, God's house, lie in waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but ye are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Okay. Obviously, they had gone very far in establishing some things. There was commerce. They had houses. They had sealed houses. They had nice houses. But something had happened, and they had stopped building the house of the Lord. So if you will, back over to the book of Ezra, I want you to see how these tie together. And if you want to have a, a real short and interesting read about this time frame, you can read the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Haggai, and the book of Zechariah. And I tell you, child of grace, if, if you can't see how we are living in a time that is so identifiable with the days of Haggai, I just don't, I just don't know what we can see. <laughs> we live in a time where there is rubble, <laughs> And there's just a remnant of God's people seeking the truth of God. And we need and should be desiring restoration. You see? We live in a time of there's just chaos and destruction. It's just like in the days of, of Ezra and of Haggai. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. You remember over here in Haggai, it was Darius. There's, there's a different king in the days of Haggai, but when they went back to Jerusalem, when they went back to build, Cyrus was on the throne. 
and this could go so far, if you want to keep on reading, you can go read the book of Isaiah where Cyrus is the king that God prophesied 150 years before. And he said, there's going to be a man after you go into captivity. He's going to be a king. His name's going to be Cyrus. He's going to be my shepherd. And I'm going to uh, instruct him to send you back to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happens. It is even said, and I may have mentioned this before, but it, does, it bears mentioning it again, that when the Jews took the scroll of Isaiah to Cyrus and showed them, showed him his name, he was, it shook him to his core. <laughs> Historically, they say it shook him to his core. God called him his shepherd. You, you want to know about the authenticity and the accuracy of the King James Bible? The prophecies? God prophesied 150 years before Cyrus was even born. And they showed that to Cyrus, and he was shaken to his core whenever he saw that the God of gods had said and called his name. And here in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. And he goes on, and I'm not going to read it because we don't have enough time, but basically Cyrus says, the Lord God of the Jews of, of Israel has instructed me to send you, you know, whoever wants to go, whoever feels burdened to go, to send you back with money and with supplies and even with a guard if you desire it. And they did to go back and build the house of the Lord. Verse three, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. Now, what if the current president of the United States or a president of the United States issued a proclamation and said, you know, God be with the Christian people of this nation. And, and I'm going to give you whatever supplies you need to build and to, you know, to build a church, to build this, to go forth and do things. Now, of course, there'd be all kinds of lawsuits about something like that, for sure. <laughs> but imagine if the dictator or the leader of a nation did that. That would be just astounding. That, that happened back in these days. The sovereign dictator, king of this nation, God instructed him to send those people back. And it was about 50-something thousand that went back. Okay, it's actually you could probably even get an exact number if you added them up. Fifty something thousand, forty three thousand or so of the Jews and then several thousand servants. And then they'd even list 200 singers. They, even some singers got on board. <laughs> you know, I guess they felt like they were going to need some uh, old fashioned hymn singing and entertainment in that way, or, at least in terms of worship. It wasn't entertainment. It was worship. But 200 singers even went back. And that was under the order, the edict of the king, Cyrus. And you can read in chapter 2 of Ezra where uh, how, the ones that went back, there's even a man named Mordecai listed in there. Now, I don't know for sure if it's the same Mordecai as in the book of Esther. I don't know. But there's some conjecture that it may be the same Mordecai. So you come over to chapter 3, and you find where when they got there, it was a long four-month or Six-month journey. That many people, there's no telling how long it took. And in the seventh month, chapter 3, they got together and they laid the foundation of the temple. Okay, everything's going great. Zerubbabel is pretty much leading them in this and, and helping guide them. And so they come there. Notice in verse 2 it says, Then stood up Joshua, 
the son of Josadak, that's Joshua, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the Lord God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses. So the first thing that they did when they got there is they laid the foundation of the altar and set the altar back up. Now remember this, they also took a lot of the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar 70 years before had taken out of the temple. You remember that stuff comes up? You, you want some more reading? You can go read about those cups and dishes and all those things that came out of the temple in the, day, in the book of Daniel. You can read about that. There's a very interesting chapter in there where the Lord still had his eyes on the things that Moses and the priests had made. And they bring those things back. And when they get there, the first thing they do, they don't start building on their houses. They probably threw up a tent, had a sleeping bag. But they honored God and worshiped God. By the way, this is sort of a side note, but in the history of the United States of America, when people began to populate the frontier of America, the first thing that they did when they came, and you could read, even the pilgrims did this, the first thing that they did when they came into an area is they would clear off a place to build their church. And then they'd begin to build their houses. They'd have a church meeting house first. These old, old Baptists and others that went out into the frontiers, they'd build their meeting house first, and then they'd start working on their houses. I wonder where they got that from. <laughs> Here are the Jews, when they got there, the Israelites, when they got there, they built the altar first. It's out in the open. There's no temple to cover it. They probably put up a tent over it, like the tabernacle. But the first thing they did in the rubble of Jerusalem, they made their way through all of the, the burned down and torn down gates and stuff that had been just laid there, probably vines and no telling what's growing over it, privet hedges, I mean, you name it. There's no telling what's growing there after all these years of 70 years of nobody being there but foxes and mountain lions and a few uh, Bedouins here or there, just a few shepherds here or there. So they make their way to the Temple Mount. You know, think about it. They didn't have Google Maps to find where that was. They just kept pressing their way into the burned out area of the city and kept going up and up until they got to the pinnacle, to the top, to Mount Zion, which is where the temple was. And they found the best place they could figure out this must be where the temple was. We can see the foundations were here. We can see that where everything was burnt out and destroyed. And so right here in the middle of this, according to the law of Moses, this is where it would have been. And they clear it off. They set up a, an altar and they began to follow the sacrifices of the law of Moses. Don't you know that was a rejoicing time? They've come all this way. It's been seven. I tell you, this was a people of destiny. I was reading in one of the history books about how the smallest of things and the most insignificant of things have such an impact on history. This is one of those things. Because they're going back, just men, just women, just children, ordinary people who have left the comforts of their home in Babylon. They've left the comforts of where they were living. It wasn't their home. Jerusalem was their true home. But they've left the comforts of their lifestyle in Babylon and they've come back to this area that is completely devastated. It's just rubble. And they begin to build. And the first thing that they do is set up the altar. In verse 3, it says, They set up the altar upon its basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. See, not only was it, did they not know where their food was going to come from? I mean, I'm sure they took supplies. But your supplies are not going to last forever. So not only did they, were they worried about where their food was going to come from, not only were they worried about how long it was going to take them to build this, but on top of that, there's enemies all around. There's people that didn't like the Jews. As a matter of fact, you're going to see why Haggai stood up and prophesied in the next chapter. Because as they go back, they don't have well-wishers around them. They don't have a, you know, a general uh, Christian mindset or a, 
or in those days, a general Jewish mindset of, yes, we wish you well, you know, shalom, peace, fare thee well. There wasn't people like that. They hated the Jews. You see, there was nobody encouraging them. So they were afraid. They built the altar. They kept the Feast of the Tabernacles because it was that time of year. <laughs> By the way, I, don't think, I think that's one that we didn't get to in our God of the Festival uh, series. And afterward, they continued the burnt offering. And they go on, verse 8 says they begin to build. And in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with the trumpets. This was a tremendous reviving type situation in the rubble and in the the terrible circumstances of Jerusalem this remnant of people this was not the bulk of the people these were just a few people compared to the rest of the Jews these remnant of people who had the burden and the desire to hold up the banner of their God went and had one of the most amazing worship services that's ever occurred. It says they sang together in their course verse 11 in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endureth forever and in verse 12, it says, But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men. Does that tell you a little bit about who went? <laughs> Not only did they take people that were you know, really in their prime to travel in those days, and they weren't traveling by SUV, and they weren't traveling by van. They were, they were traveling by donkeys and wagons and walking and carrying their own stuff. And here it says that even there were ancient men among them and women. Can you imagine the bravery and the courage of those older ones who ventured from the luxury of Babylon to come back to this devastation, to this rubble here in Jerusalem? They were, they were tough, weren't they? And they were brave. They had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes and they wept with a loud voice. <laughs> and then others who had never seen that, you know, and here's what was going on. The foundation that they laid was smaller than the previous house, Solomon's house. And so the older ones that knew that and saw, oh, it's just not like it was back in the old days. <laughs> By the way, Haggai's going to address that in chapter 2. He's going to address that. Oh, it's just not like it was back in the old days. The temple's not going to be as big. It's not going to be as glorious. Oh, the good old days. Well, the good old days is what got them absolutely destroyed, you see? <laughs> So the, the older folks are over there going, oh, goodness, I can't believe it's just not going to be like it was before. And then the younger folks are over there going, yes, yes, praise God, praise God, praise God. They're just, and they're smiling, they're laughing, and they're probably thinking, thank God for the Holy Script here, you know, they're probably thinking, oh, look, they're so overcome, they're so happy, they're overcome. And they're over there crying, going, oh, this is terrible, you know. <laughs> oh, what a mess, huh? So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. That's a little bit of foreshadowing right there. So in chapter 4, an ugly snake rears its head. And yeah, I mean, I know Satan's a snake, but there's also another snake. And it starts with the letter P. And it's called politics. Politics begins in Ezra, the fourth chapter. You know, do you know there was a day in America before political parties? That's an invention after the founding of America. Did you know that? Look at your history. The ones that haven't been rewritten, by the way. And politics has been around for a long time. 
Politics is a divider. Politics is what causes people to, to take sides, you see. And in this right here, in chapter 4 and on down, politics gets involved. And eventually, they send a letter back to a different king now who's in place. And that different king shuts down. Cyrus gets killed in battle, by the way. And another king named Darius takes over. And they send him a political lobby letter. And Darius says, shut this thing down. He shuts down the building of the temple. And it stays shut down for 15 years. That would really be throwing water on your fire, on your, on your campfire, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, here they are fired up. Here they are so excited. They've traveled. They've, got, they've spent nope, millions of dollars has been spent. You can read about that in chapter 2 of Ezra. Millions of dollars have come from Babylon. It's been funded by Cyrus. And then people have taken their own money and their own goods. And they've gone and they've, they've committed their life to this movement that's taking place here. And then politics comes along and shuts it down. You say, well, why can't you really relate to that? Yes, you can. What happened in, in 2020? Politics came along and shut a religion down. It didn't shut the, most of the bars down, by the way, but it shut the churches down. <laughs> Many bars continued to serve alcohol, but you couldn't go to church in certain places. Politics, child of God. Yeah, but I know there was a sickness. I know I get that. But it was politically driven. But you can't deny that. Politics gets involved, and all of a sudden the kingdom just kind of becomes less important. So the people started working on their houses. You know, the first thing they did was to offer sacrifice and rebuild the altar. But whenever the politics shut it down and it stayed shut down for 15 years, they used their money and their funds and their effort and their time and they built nice houses, which there's nothing wrong with that. And they established commerce and they farmed the countryside and cultivated the countryside and people began to trade and interact and all, you know, as long as those Jews over there are not building on their temple, then we, we don't have much of a problem with them. You get that? Now, that's the attitude of the world towards God's people. You know, as long as you just don't really get in, you know, to politics and you don't really get into, you know, the government scene and you don't really get, you know, you just kind of keep yourself isolated over there and don't let your kingdom views affect, you know, my lifestyle. Don't let it get in my way. Then everybody's okay. You know, we can kind of go along to get along. But let me tell you something. God never intended for children of God to go along, to get along in the sense of going along with the world. You see that? God called upon these people 70 years before. He says, there's coming a generation that I'm going to send back to build for the purpose of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding Jerusalem, and I'm going to raise them up to do that. I'm even going to have a foreign king named Cyrus to permit them and order them Give them protection to go back and do that. And so these are, the, these are that people that have gone back to the rubble. They're just a remnant. They're just a few people compared to the rest of the people. And it's also interesting to think about because we often think, you know, well, what difference can I make? You know, what, what good can I do? You know, they, they probably thought the same thing. You know, here we are on the backside of the world, you know, with this burnout, rubble-filled terrible situation this place that we've come to and what, what real difference can we make and now the politics are against us you know now the politics have risen up and gotten into it and i'm just really kind of scared to step out and these these were 
strong leader type men, Zerubbabel, and you've got Zerubbabel, you've got Joshua, the high priest. I mean, these men were not timid type men, but when this politics got involved, they just shut down. And that's the purpose of what God sent them back for. He sent them back to stir things up. You get that? Now look, we're not talking about being argumentative and mean-spirited or anything like that. We're not talking about that. Child of God is never called on to be argumentative or mean-spirited. You understand? The child of God is called on to do what God tells them to do, and the conversations will come. You see that? Just do what God says to do. Build the temple. And whether you realize it or not, we're living in the rubble of a destroyed and ruined society. And we can't let politics take us away from building the kingdom of God. God calls upon you to build His kingdom just like He called upon these people in those days to go back to a place that nobody cared about and most people were glad that it was shut down. They, most people were like, oh, we're glad there's no issue anymore about those Jews. We're so glad Israel is completely wiped out. We, don't, you know, we never cared about them in the first place. And they were such a nuisance, claiming that their God was the only true God, claiming that they had the true worship of the Lord. I'm so glad that they're gone. And now here they are, popped back up. You know why? Because God popped them back up. He wanted His temple rebuilt for a specific reason that in the next few minutes I hope we get to. <laughs> Because it's very important. And you remember, don't forget those old folks were there going, oh no, it's awful. The foundation. You know, there's probably some of those old folks among that crowd when the politics got involved and the, and the kingdom building shut down, they probably in their minds were going, yeah, well, you know, it wasn't much of a temple anyway. <laughs> it wasn't much to it anyway. I saw the first one and, you know, probably good that it, it was shut down. <laughs> I'm making a big assumption there, but you think, I know human nature. I know my own nature. So 15 years goes by. 15 years. Look over in chapter 5. We cover about 15 years from chapter to chapter here. And you see chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And whatever they said, which we've read some of what they said. Now, don't think that the two chapters is all he said, okay? That's just what's recorded. But this fellow was out there preaching to them every day. He was preaching in the streets. He was telling them, why are, I, I could just see, I could just see, you know, old uh, brother whoever going to the hardware, you know, to get some something to fix up his house. You know, maybe there was a leak in his roof or he wanted a, you know, he wanted some pretty tile or something, you know, and had it shipped in from somewhere far away and he's walking along with his tile, you know, and here comes Haggai and he says, hey, you, you're going to fix up your house and look at the temple of God up there. It's rubble. It's just nothing. It hasn't been built. And the guy's probably thinking he's going on. Well, who's he to talk to me in my business? Who's the prophet of God to get into my business? Who is the preacher of God to get into my business? For that matter, you might as well say, well, who is God to get into my business? God is in your business, child of God. And He sends ministers of the gospel to get in your business. And it may be in the form of just getting up and preaching something that they have no idea what you've got going on. But from time to time, they get up and they preach. I've had that happen many times. And it makes me nervous. <laughs> 
And it makes me feel convicted when uh, Brother Luke preaches a sermon, uh, wherefore take heed that, uh, that he that thinketh he's standing, take heed lest he fall. And I think about how quick David fell, and I think about how quick the other ones that he mentioned fell, and it just convicts me. And I think, you know, that's me. How did he read my mail? How did he know what's going on in my life? You see, I know whereof I speak because it happens to me. You can go from the mountaintop to the bottom of the valley just like that. Thank God that there's preachers. Thank God that there's men of God that will stand and preach the truth. Thank God that there is a remnant in the midst of the rubble. Thank God that there's God reading our mail, right? <laughs> and so look what happens. They must have been preaching some good messages, Haggai, because it says Haggai began to preach. About two months later, Zechariah begins to preach and prophesy. And then in verse 2, Then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak and began to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. Isn't that great? I tell you, that was a glorious time. That was a monumental time in history because God had said, God says that something is coming to the temple. It's kind of like in the days when God told Abraham, he said, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You never had one and, and you can't have one because you're not able and your wife is not able, but you're going to have a son. I'm going to send you a son and I'm going to raise up a savior through that bloodline, through those descendants. And then God sends him up on the mountain after he has a son and it was impossible for him to have but all things are possible with God. And so he sends him up the mountain. He says, now I'll go sacrifice that son. <laughs> doesn't make any sense, does it? In the natural mindset, it, logically, it doesn't make any sense. But it, it goes beyond logic. It goes into the realm of glory and of the power of God because God was able to raise up Abraham's son if he sacrificed him, you see? Abraham believed in the resurrection. And God says, one day my, there's something special coming to this temple. Well, there is no temple. It's wiped out. It's been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar came along and pulled down every stone of the temple. But God said that there's coming a day when something special is going to come to the temple. So it's got to be rebuilt. And can you think about those people as they began to lay those stones? I wonder if they cried tears upon those stones as they laid those stones there. They thought, you know, this is history. We're living history right now we're in the midst of this rubble but every stone that i lay of this temple and set it back like it was god has promised that there's something coming one day and every time i take my hands and i lay a stone in place i am walking in history child of god i tell you as you labor and as you serve in the rubble of this society that has completely gone mad i want you to know every little stone that you put in place every living stone that you minister to every time you interact with the children of god Every time that you pray to the Lord and say, Lord, give me opportunities, I tell you, you're in living history because the Lord does not despise the small things. And every little small stone that those children of God laid there, they were fulfilling the prophecy of God. Every little stone that you minister to, child of God, in this life, throughout every breath that you take in this life, every little stone that you minister to in the rubble of this society is a fulfillment of God's prophecy of the New Testament kingdom, the New Testament church. In the rubble, there's a remnant. Okay? And through the remnant, there's restoration. <laughs> I, I don't know what could be... I don't know. They're all encouraging. But how encouraging is that for the children of God to know that God is looking upon everything that you do? <laughs> he was looking upon these people, and through Haggai the prophet... He tells them, he says, don't you know 
that you're living in these houses and everything is so good. In Haggai, the first chapter again, you've sown much. You're going out there, you're planting, and you're bringing in little. You're eating, but you're still hungry. You're drinking, and, and you're still not slaking your thirst when you drink. You put on clothes, but you're still cool. You're, you're not warm, uh, even though you're wearing clothes. You're earning wages and putting them in a bag, and they're just going through like a holes in that bag. Uh, you know, I feel, that, that I feel like that's the way it is even today, you know, where does the money go that we earn? You know, we pay this bill, we pay that bill. It's just like you got a hole in your, in your wallet where everything's just going out. <laughs> and he says, you look for much and you take in little. He says, therefore, the heaven over you has stayed from dew and the earth has stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land. That's verse 11. And upon, this is in Haggai and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth. Because they were not building the house of God, God called for a drought. Now you think about that in terms of what we face today. There is a drought in our land. And it is not a drought of water or food. There's plenty. Just ask Brother Martin. <laughs> He was testifying to that. There's plenty. There's a drought of the Word of God. There's a drought of the thirst for the Word of God. You see, that is the very foundation for the living stones of God. Child of God, you don't have to go to Jerusalem and pack up and build a temple over there anymore because those days are gone. Those days have passed. But what God calls upon you to do is to build your life as the temple of God. You see, you are the living stones of God. You are the temple of God. Jesus said that you are where he takes up a abode within your heart. You see, we know he does that in the new birth, but he continues to abide there. You see, there's a famine in the land. There's a drought. A lot of people that claim religion, you see. But where is spirituality? You get that? Religion is activity. Spirituality is connection. Connection with God. Religion is programs and all of this, you know, do this, do that, do the other. But spirituality is falling on your face before a holy God and realizing what a sinner you are. I can identify. Even over here in West Alabama, you should be able to identify with the rubble that truth churches were in years ago. You couldn't find a primitive Baptist preacher within two hours of here. And now you've got several preachers at one church, several preachers at another church. I tell you, God has blessed some truth and some temple growth amidst the rubble of truth that was there. You see? Satan was just as happy as he could be. There's very little truth known. There's very little promotion of the truth. I tell you, it burdened my heart like I cannot explain to you when we moved back here. I remember thinking, you know, the Lord wants me to move back down there. There's not even really any churches down there. I wonder if there's even any God's people down there. Of course there are. I knew some. They were in my family, you know, and there were many, many others. But I can identify with what was going on in the minds of these people. And you say, well, you're kind of localizing it, Brother Tim. Well, it was localized in those days when they went back to Jerusalem. It was just a handful of them compared to the rest of the world and compared to the rest of the Jews. You need to see how important that is in the rubble that we live in today. You're a remnant, child of God. You're a remnant. You're following the old paths. 
I was talking with somebody here recently that there's only, now look, when I say this, somebody could say, well, that sounds arrogant. I'm not arrogant. I'm not prideful. I'm just stating a fact. There's only one church that has not changed the way that it worships in the last 2,000 years. To sing, to preach, to pray. There's only one church because you got new flavors all the time. You got new flavors of praise and worship. You know, it's what's going to be next year? What's going to be the next, the next flavor? It's entertainment, is what it is. But there's only one group of truth believers that have not changed the way that they worship. And I'm not saying that because I, I wasn't here 2,000 years ago. But you can look from the days of Christ on the banks of the Jordan River and after the first Passover, the, the last Passover, the first communion, they sang, they preached, and they prayed. And for the last 2,000 years, You've had a group of what are now known as primitive Baptists, used to be known as other, by other names, but they sang, they preached, and they prayed, and they stood for the truth. There's always been a remnant there, always. But you know why? Not because I said so, but because the Lord said so. There's always been a remnant. There, somebody could look at that and say, well, there was no remnant from the time they went into Babylonian captivity. Well, I beg to differ, there was. And that remnant went back and built the temple again. And child of God, if you love the Lord and you see Him as your only hope of salvation and you love the truth of God and you love to sing and, to and you love to hear preaching and you love to pray, let me tell you, you're in good company. You're in the remnant. You see that? You're in the remnant. You ought to rejoice that you believe what you believe. You ought to look around you and say, Lord, help us. <laughs> You know, help me to put a little stone on the temple block, you know? Every little thing you do in the kingdom of God. And help me to do more. These people had gotten distracted. You see that? They had gone in a direction to where they were no longer focusing on building the kingdom of God. They had jobs. and you got to have a job. I get it. I'm not saying quit your job. <laughs> you gotta, they had jobs. You know, they had activities going on. Nothing wrong with activities, you know, as long as it's not consuming your life and it's the focus of your life. You know, they had all these different pursuits. They had farming going on. There's nothing wrong with farming because, you know, you got to eat. <laughs> But they had lost sight of their purpose. You get that? Let me tell you, child of God, your purpose in this life, it, you need to have a job and you need to provide and you need, it's okay to have activities. It's okay to like football or volleyball or tennis or whatever, you know, ballet, whatever it may be. It's okay to like those things. But when those things identify who you are, that when those things become your passion in the sense that that's all you want, then we've crossed the line and we've forgotten that we're called to be the remnant and the rubble and to restore the kingdom of God we've forgotten it's okay to have some of those things but when they begin to distract you away from your purpose let me tell you child of God you have a higher purpose these people that went back from Babylon they felt a higher purpose upon their life the higher purpose was not to look up at them and they're high and mighty. The higher purpose was not to make a name for themselves. The higher purpose that they felt was to make a name for God, to bring glory to the God of heaven and earth who had blessed them to go into captivity and come out of captivity. You see, let me tell you, child of God, you were in captivity. You weren't just in captivity. You were dead in your sins. And the Lord ransomed you with the blood of His Son and brought you out of that captivity. And I tell you, you have a higher purpose. Your purpose is not to serve the world. Your purpose is not to serve the things of the world. But your higher purpose is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and expand the kingdom of God. And there's no more important time in history than to do that now. In the death throes of a ruined society that dies a little bit more every day.
That is where our God in heaven specializes in bringing forth a beautiful light of remnant and to restore the kingdom of God. He specializes in that. Can you imagine what was going through Zerubbabel's head when he got there and he looked around? I would have thought, my goodness, I miss eating steak in Babylon. <laughs> my goodness, I miss my couch. I miss my easy chair. I miss all the people that I knew there in Babylon. Look at this mess. It's just ash and it's just rubble. What are we going to do? Oh my goodness, I tell you what we're going to do because I can't go back and I've committed myself to this. We're going to worship the Lord in the midst of this rubble. And that's what they did. I'm not through with Haggai, but I'm out of time. So thank goodness they listened to Haggai, right? Thank goodness they listened to him. And they felt glorious purpose upon their life to start building the temple. But Haggai's got some more preaching to do. Haggai's got a message for those ancient ones who cried on the day that the smaller foundation was laid when they look back and thought what a greater, larger foundation it was in years gone by. Hey, guys, got an incredible message for them to get them through, not to fuss at them and be angry at them, but to get them through their confusion. We'll find that in chapter 2 when he speaks of the desire of nations coming to that temple that they were building. That would be very encouraging, would it not? So, we see where they went back to the rubble. They were just a remnant. But they began to restore with every little stone that they began to lay. Child of God, in the rubble of our society, be the remnant. Stand for the truth. Stand for the Word of God. Stand for the morality of the Word of God. And build with every little lively stone that you encounter. Have an impact on them. That's your higher purpose. Not to make a name for yourself but to make a name for the Lord Jesus Christ and give Him the glory. There's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord. On this Wednesday night, we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.